got to talk about sexuality as the Bible defines it over and against how the culture chooses to define it. And then last week, Drew gave a very lengthy message on singleness. And I appreciate that because I have no idea how much time I'm going to need, but I'm playing with his mulligan. So whatever I do, it will be shorter than Drew's. Um, but in each of these messages, he, he's okay with that. In each of these messages... Um, we have been confronted with what the world says about these topics, and then we have, we have insisted that the Christian thing to do is to return to the scriptures and understand what God says about this subject. And I am not so naive as to believe that everyone in this room has the same thoughts about marriage. In fact, I would guess that however many people are in this room, we have that many different ways of thinking about marriage. We have very different relationships to marriage. We have people that have been married for a long time, some not so long. We have people that aren't married at all. We have some that were and are now widowed, and we have some that were and are now divorced. We have some that have no interest in marriage and some that really want marriage. And we need to go back and study what it is the scriptures actually teach about this subject because for every, every situation I've just listed, and there are more, like, what the Bible says about this institution matters because I would argue that it, it is way before Matthew 19 that this shows up. It's, as Jesus points out, it takes place in the garden. The Bible, as, uh, as Paul Weiss has said in the last couple of days, the Bible begins with a marriage and then in the book of Revelation it ends with a marriage. And everything in between it is really about a marriage of one sort or another. So whatever relationship you have to such an institution as marriage it's important that we recognize what the Bible says about it. So let me actually begin by praying for us because I would hope that um, from the host of perspectives that are in this room that you'll ignore everything that I say and listen to what the scriptures say. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I beg you to speak through your word and by your spirit and in the context of community this morning. I pray that you would give us the ability to lay down preconceived notions, to lay down preferences, to lay down selfish desires and to hear the truth. And that once we have, we'll have hearts that are willing to engage with your spirit in the process of transformation. Father, this subject is difficult for some. For others, they come to it with an indifferent perspective. But I pray that in each case, you will speak. And that in each case, we'll seek out wise counsel. We will delve into the scriptures through prayer and in vibrant biblical community. God, teach us today what it is you would have us know about marriage not for the sake of marriage, but for the sake of you. Teach us more about you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we all have different beliefs in this room. Um, beliefs are important, unbelievably important, because what we believe shapes what we do. If you're with us on Wednesday nights, we're going through the book of 1 Timothy, and you'll hear almost ad nauseum this idea that our orthodoxy shapes our orthopraxy and it even goes the other direction our orthopraxy shapes our orthodoxy now to clear up those terms it's right belief orthodoxy 
shapes right living, orthopraxy. But how you live shapes how you believe, and how you believe shapes how you live. So we got to do both pretty well. So I want to ask the question, where did you get your beliefs about marriage? Where did we get our beliefs about marriage? And for many of us, the world has shaped a great deal of what we believe about this. Now, we're going to get to Matthew 19 in a second, so if you want to, you can go ahead and turn there. But I want to talk first, before Jesus responds to a worldly question in Matthew 19, I want to talk about the world's perspectives now. Particularly, I want to talk about doctrines that we have chosen. Doctrines we have chosen. Doctrine, just a word for belief or, or a, a dogma, a set of principles that we hold to. There are many that we've chosen to believe as it regards marriage. Now, first, I probably need to explain what does the idea of indoctrination mean? Because like it or not, we are all indoctrinated to something. I, um, I did some Googling as to how can you, and this, is, this will yield funny results if you go Google, how do you indoctrinate someone? Um, it is amazing. There are people that are formerly members of cults that are now exposing this very, very effective tactic of indoctrinating someone such that they will come to believe something either good or absurd. You can indoctrinate people by rallying support around a very charismatic leader. You can indoctrinate people by promising the good life. Takes a, if you will do this, that, and the other, you can achieve this. Whether that's wealth or some sort of prize or status, you can indoctrinate by providing a path to the good life. Another tactic that they use in certain cults is to separate you from those that love you. If the only message you hear is ours, it's hard for you to continue to believe the way you did, and you will eventually start to believe what we believe. I can indoctrinate you. I can shut you off from your community. I can make it very difficult for you to leave. And then when you want to leave, I can, I can threaten to remove the prize, remove the good life. It's amazing how these people that have left cults say, wow, I had no idea what they were doing to reshape how I believe and how I act and how I live. So I don't know that anyone in here is susceptible to joining a cult anytime soon. But culture is doing everything it can to indoctrinate you. Culture is trying to teach you certain things to believe about marriage. It is very, very different than what the Bible explains about marriage. Um, a, a few weeks ago, actually about a week ago, I, I had the opportunity to take my son. Um, we drove two and a half hours um, east and, and we went down to Eufaula. My wife, her family has um, a big farm right there off of, you, uh, off of Lake Eufaula, and um, every time one of the boys or one of the men in their, in their family turns 16, they have this big rite of passage ceremony. It's really cool. I've never been a part of one. This is the first group of cousins that turned 16 since I've been in the, in the family. There's a lot of girls in the family, but when, they, when, when David and Nathan, who are cousins, and they turn 16 about a month apart... Last Saturday, we had their rite of passage ceremony. And so I took my son, Rachel, stayed here for some homecoming stuff, but Matthew and I went down. And it was awesome. So we have all the guys, we have really as much family as can, they, they, they show up down at the farm, and it's this beautiful old rock farmhouse, this 
ancient barn with hand-sawn lumber. It's this gorgeous property, and we spend all afternoon doing guy stuff, the ter- stereotypical guy stuff. We, we spend hours shooting guns at whatever we can find, and, when we go, and we cook a bunch of meat on a grill. It was awesome. My, my three-year-old son is now privy to a world he didn't know existed, and he loved it. And then later that night, as it gets dark and it starts to get cool out on the, on the property, we all go into the old barn. And it, it, it looks a lot like this, actually. So they have, they, they, they've collected over the years old pews from churches, and they pulled them out and arranged them in the barn so all the family can sit. And we have, in the center of the barn, it's, it's lit by, like, um, they have some Christmas lights strong and some lanterns. It's this real kind of old, ancient look. It's very primal. And we put, in the middle of the room, we put two chairs, one for David and one for Nathan. So all the family sitting back there, theirs right here, they're facing this way. And then back here, this was the part I got to play. So mounted on the top of the barn up there is a giant moose head that their grandfather killed. Right there is the elk that their grandfather killed. And then back here is the big stuffed black bear that their grandfather killed. It is so manly, I didn't even know what to do with it. It was a blast. So David and Nathan are sitting right here. They're looking this way. And then we have the elders of the family. I'm now one of the elders of the family. It's my daughter's fault. My hair is turning white really quick. So we have the elders of the family sitting here, eight chairs. And um, Nathan's father started, and he looked at these men, and he said, this is what it means to be a biblical man. Explains it to them. Then their grandfather went next, and he said, he's, he's in his 80s, he's, he's aging quickly. He takes off his oxygen tube long enough to give basically a 20-minute sermon. And he, he explained what the value of family. He's the patriarch. He's the reason that this whole room exists. And he explains how valuable family is and what you do to sacrifice for family and how you love your family. Next was Uncle Jeff. And he is a, uh, a sergeant in the Los Angeles County Sheriff Department. He flew in from California. And he described, he said, biblical men protect those they love. They care for those they love. They provide for those they love. And he gave this rousing charge. Then their other uncle, Peter, who is a professor of economics at San Jose State University, said, this is how men steward their money well. And then I was next, and I got, to, I got to speak to them on sexual purity. Let me tell you about sexual ethics as the Bible explains it. Let me tell you how to treat women. And then their other grandfather got to talk about hard work and generosity. And then Rachel's dad got to talk about men as titans of spiritual discipline that spend time in prayer, spend time alone with God. And then David's father got to finish and say, let me tell you what you can and cannot do on your own. And you can do almost nothing that these guys have described without an absolute allegiance to the scriptures. It was amazing. I loved being a part of it. But what were we doing? In each of these topics, we were explaining to these two 16-year-old men, the world will tell you something. Let us tell you something better. The world will indoctrinate you to matters of family and marriage and sex and finance and let us just, let us serve as watchmen. Let us serve as the men on the top of the city that look out and say, here's trouble coming. You're going to encounter a 16-year-old man. You're under a lot of protection now living in your parents' house. But when you leave, the world will come at you full force. Let us equip you to deal with it. Let us indoctrinate you first. Because the world, when it comes to marriage, will spend a lot of time indoctrinating you to things that aren't 
biblical or at best are horrible variations of the biblical ideal. First one is that the world will teach us about love in marriage according to us. The world will say, listen to us. We have some wisdom as it regards love in marriage. It'll say marriage is a place where two people that are in so much love that experience this beautiful romantic relationship can just flourish and then the fairy tale wedding will take place and then the fairy tale life will just go on forever. My kids right now, their favorite story is um, Sleeping Beauty. It drives me crazy, but that's what they love. And so we read it a lot. And I, and I writing this sermon, I'm, I'm thinking, wow, am I teaching them about true love and about we just need that one person to come and kiss her so she can wake up? And like, is this the fairy tale? That, is this what they're going to understand? Do they look at Rachel and I like this? Do they think that we had this whirlwind romance and this is what it means to be in love? Because when the world talks about love, it's more about um, romance, sexual fulfillment. Two things, by the way, that aren't unbiblical, but when elevated to the status that the world puts on them, they become so quickly. The, um, the Enlightenment period happened 300-ish years ago. And what it did in our culture is it took a society of men and women who cared more about the collective, who cared about their village, who cared about their community, and would serve with that in mind and said, actually, the most important thing is you, self-actualization. Understand yourself. And it trickled down into our marriages. Eventually, marriage became less about us and more about me. See, the world says, I need to be in love with Rachel. I need her to fulfill all my wants and longings. I need her to be that perfect whirlwind romance. I need her to fulfill every role that every romantic comedy has ever placed on her. And I will sit here, and should she meet all of my criteria, then we will get married, and it will be eternal bliss. Dr. James Smith is a professor at Calvin College. I believe it's in Grand Rapids, uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. He is a professor of philosophy, Christian University, and he wrote a phenomenal article in 2014 called Marriage for the Common Good. I'm just going to read to you a few excerpts from this marriage, and I think he does a great job of pointing out some of the goofiness of this idea that love in marriage is the preeminent quality that we should be looking for. He says this, about his cousin's wedding. He said, the excitement has been building ever since that first Facebook post, the one with the video of him proposing to her against the industrial chic backdrop of the Brooklyn Navy, Navy Yard, while a band with beards and lots of banjos surprised them with a serenade. The video went viral, of course, so the bar was raised for the wedding itself. The invitations arrived encased in 1950s cigar tins featuring overlapping images of their tattoos on handmade paper, complete with vintage postage stamps for your RSVP. The wedding will be catered by Korean taco food trucks, and that band is going to play an encore, but with more, um, with more mandolins. The wedding has its own Tumblr and its own hashtag, and everyone goes home with their own mouth organ inscribed with the brides and grooms' names. 
No one will forget this day, mostly because it will be scrupulously photographed, posted, shared, tweeted, and uploaded. And as we all know, the internet never forgets. He goes on to say, the implicit mythology of wedding incorporated only reflects how we approach marriage too. Indeed, the myths we load into weddings almost doom marriages to fail. Weddings are centered around the romantic coupling of two star-crossed lovers, as if marriage was an extended exercise of staring deep into one another's eyes with benefits. But even then, my spouse is one who sees me, will meet my needs, will fulfill my wants, will complete me. Thinly veiled shot at Renee Zellweger. Even our romantic coupling becomes a form of self-love. He says this, the romantic picture is already enacted in the honeymoon. To kindle your marriage, you need to get away. Retreat from the drudgery of the workday world, which is apparently matrimonial poison. For your marriage to last, according to this logic, you'll have to keep planning dates and romantic escapes for just the two of you to keep the fire alive. And by all means, don't have children too soon. They are, according to this myth, the equivalent of a marital buzzkill, because marriage is romance, and romance is just the two of you. He says, too many weddings are spectacles in which we celebrate your dyadic bliss. We're there more as spectators more than partners. And in that sense, they are often preludes to the sorts of marriages that follow. When lovers are staring into one another's eyes, their backs are to the world. He is saying, in effect, many of the things that we believe about love and marriage can seem selfless, can seem endearing, but in the end are unbelievably selfish and focused on us. Second thing that the world wants us to believe about marriage is that it leads to progress. It is a step in the right direction. Do you want stability? Get married. You want companionship? Get married. Lonely? Get married. You think you should have kids? normal way to do that is to get married. You're bored? Get married. Did you just graduate college? Probably time to get married. You really want someone to focus on you and you alone for the rest of your life? Get married. She has to. The world teaches us that marriage is just this step in a process that gets us what we really want. That's so demeaning. third thing the world teaches us is that for us to marry, combat- compatibility is key. You see, for Rachel and I to get married, we should, we, we should want all the same things. We should have all the same goals. We should really show up and, and just think alike. Because only if we do that do we have a real chance at lasting. Only when we do that will I be happy. You see how selfish some of these things are. If, if Rachel is to be, if she's compatible with me, I want her to like all the things I like and, and dislike all the things I dislike. Basically, I want her to be perfect and I want her to ask me to do nothing. She needs to fit all of my criteria and I don't want to change a bit. And only then are we compatible. How, all these things seem admirable, but at their core, they're incredibly selfish. There's a quote here from Stanley Hauervoss, he is a professor at Duke Divinity School. He says this, Destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. 
The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. What he's doing is he's saying there is no such thing as a soulmate. There's no such thing as the one. Who is that? Who fits you perfectly? He says, you always marry the wrong person. Matt Chandler says it like this. There is no such thing as the one. Once you say, I do, she's the one. Seven minutes before that, not the one. We always marry the wrong person. Which means there's got to be something more than love, progress, and compatibility that feeds this institution called marriage. It's not on the screen, but... One um, Swiss cultural critic named Denise de Rogemont said this. Why in the world should neurotic, selfish, immature people suddenly become angels when they fall in love? How much have we romanticized marriage? And we truly believe if she's the one, if he's the one, if we fit, if we have the same goal in mind, then it'll work. It's like, no, you're joining two broken idiots together that now have to do this together forever. You always marry the wrong person. So there's something else that we need in order to understand marriage. If those are the doctrines we've chosen, perhaps we should instead turn and look at the doctrines that have been decreed since the beginning of time. Things that are set in place without our consultation, without our opinions being considered. You know who will mess up marriage if you let them set the rules? Me and every one of you. We have no authority to describe what such a holy institution looks like. But God does, and he has. We've spent thousands of years ignoring it. As I am looking David and Nathan in the eye, and this is awkward, I'm kind of the, the guy, I said, I told their dads, I said, I really hope you've done, like, your side of the work, because I'm not giving your sons the sex talk. But I will describe sexual ethics according to the Bible to them. And I looked at them, and it was amazing how I'm talking to two single men. This is helpful for you single people in the room who think, marriage, what does this subject have to do with me? I'm looking at two single men. And the only way I can describe sexual fidelity and, and, and sexual purity and, and what it's going to look like to remain faithful to wives should God one day give them, all I could do to two single men is keep going back to marriage. I had no ability to talk about sex outside of marriage because the Bible doesn't give me that ability. I had to keep going back to what, mar- what sex was designed to do. So David, Nathan... Let me describe to you what, let me describe to you, and I, I have to keep telling these single guys about marriage. All I'm doing, I think, is making them jealous, but um, I had to go back to the design. I had to go back to the design. So, that being the case, let's look at what Jesus says first in Matthew 19. When asked by worldly men about divorce, He says this in verse 4. He answered. Well, I'll I'll back up to 3. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to to divorce one's wife for any cause? Any cause whatsoever. It's a worldly question. 
Verse 4, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus responds to, someone's listening to him, Jesus responds to the question of divorce by going back to marriage's design. Going back and say, hey, wait, he who created them from the beginning, let's go back. You need a remedial course in marriage, obviously. Let's go way back. And he goes back and he describes God's original intent for marriage, and then he quotes Genesis 2, 24. So we need to, instead of looking at the things the world says, we need to see what God says about it. So what is marriage's design according to God? Paul, in probably the, the most saturated chapter in the New Testament on marriage specifically, in Ephesians 5, describes a host of many things. Now, we'll typically go to this chapter when we want to talk about men's and women's roles in the context of marriage. That's not what we're talking about today. I have a lot of, uh, a lot of room to stay where I want to without dealing with the fringe issues because we've already dealt with manhood, womanhood, sexuality, singleness, and we'll deal with divorce. So in a lot of ways, I can stay focused This is what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives. This is starting in verse 25. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. If you're you're in like a, a real Bible, circle the that. This is why. That he might sanctify her. This is why Christ loved the church and gave himself up. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That, circle to that, she might be holy and without blemish. Now this comes right after the section on wives submit to your husbands. So wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives, and then it says, and this is what takes place. Holiness, sanctification. Contrary to what the world teaches that says that marriage is all about love, the Bible seems to teach that marriage is all about holiness. It's all about imaging the picture of Christ in the church. We'll get to that in a second. Now, I'm not saying that marriage doesn't involve love. It just involves biblical love. Biblical love tends to produce holiness. It calls people to a greater degree of Christ-likeness. The second thing that marriage demands according to God, is power. David and Nathan, after I've explained to them what it looks like to be sexually faithful to their singleness and then one day to their wife, I got to end my talk with saying, and if that seemed bleak, the good news is you can't do this. You have no ability to do what I just called you to do. If you just think you're going to white-knuckle it and do this and you're going to hold to the biblical ideal, good luck. You need help. Neither one of you are smart enough to do this on your own. No one in this room can do it on their own. You require help, and that comes in a number of forms. Earlier, Paul says this in Ephesians 5.21. Actually, I'm going to read the first half of that verse. I think I only gave you the back half. Ephesians 5.21 comes at the end of a chapter that's not about um, marriage, but about just generally living in a wise way. So I'll start up at verse 15 and then skip a bunch. Verse 15, Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, 
making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Then he explains some of the ways that that plays out, and he ends it with the summary statement. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I think there Paul is describing the power, before he even gets into the section about marriage, the power that we have to live out such an ideal. And I think it's even more than Rachel and I submitting to one another. I think I have to submit to you. I have to submit to the wisdom of a biblical community of people filled with the Holy Spirit and informed by God's scriptures. We always talk about three primary ways that God speaks is through his spirit, through his word, and through his people. So I don't have the ability to live as a faithful husband to Rachel without the power that God gives me to do so and without submitting to you. So my question then is, how often do you let people into your marriages? How comfortable are you with a critical eye from a godly person, from someone who loves you enough to speak truth to you? can't tell you how many times I've had to listen to the wisdom of God speaking through my wife for the sake of our marriage. And she likewise. Can't tell you how many times we've had to go get counseling. We have a good marriage. We've had to get counseling. I ask people all the time who've been married longer than us, how should I do this? How should I handle this? Because I trust the Spirit working through them. If you want to see our, our, our marriage just crater and train wreck, watch us do it by ourselves. Again, we both married the wrong person. We both married broken people left to our own devices like David and Nathan. We can't do this. But Paul says, submit to one another. That's how you look carefully how you walk. That's how, you, that's how you exercise wisdom instead of foolishness. Finally, our marriages are supposed to proclaim something. Marriage is intended to have a message. Anyone who has a spouse is, by default, a preacher. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 5.31. He, too, quotes Genesis 2. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he goes on to say, ah, this mystery, this one flesh mystery is profound. And we think, wow, mystery, I guess we'll never know. And then he explains it. And I am saying <laughs> that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, how is Christ joined with his church through the gospel? Like, the gospel doesn't exist to fix my marriage. The gospel doesn't exist to make me an easier person to love for Rachel. Which, by the way, would be helpful. But the gospel is the primary thing. My marriage is the figure. My marriage is the metaphor, not the gospel. My marriage is intended to give the world a picture of the gospel, to give the world a picture of God reconciling things, of brokenness coming into the light of brokenness turning into restoration and healing and, restor and reconciliation. My marriage should be communicating to the rest of the world the beautiful grace of the gospel. So, if that's true, if marriage has a design, according to God, and that design is to make us holy, 
if he empowers us to do so by the Spirit in us submitting to one another, and then if it's supposed to end, it's supposed to say something about the beauty of the gospel, what do the marriages in this room need? We must trust God's design for marriage. You see, all the stuff I listed earlier about what the world teaches, some of you really like that side of things. Some of you really like what the world teaches. Stop it. (laughs) I guess that's as biblical as I can be. Stop that. Learn to love what God says about marriage, even when you have to submit to it, even when you have to say, that's hard, I don't get it, I don't quite agree. Just know when you disagree with God, you're always wrong. It just takes you a little while to figure it out. You never get to be right when you disagree with God. Arguing with the Bible, foolish endeavor. You always lose. Believe what God has said about marriage and trust him. And it doesn't mean your marriage will be perfect, but it does mean it will be a place where holiness grows. We need to serve one another in the power of the Holy Spirit. I challenge you all, let people into your marriage. If you've never talked about your marriage outside of your own home, you are fighting with one hand tied behind your back. There is wisdom in this community. There's wisdom in this book. Let us in. We have ministries at Sunnybrook that, that, that deal with this. We have, we have a counselor on staff. We have a marriage ministry. We have a Stephen ministry. We have people that are trained to help us. A refusal for help is just going to end in, I would guess, hardened hearts. Perhaps a divorce. Who knows? Let us in. Serve one another. Finally, we need to feel the burden of a world that desperately needs the gospel. If you have a wife or if you have a husband, you have a platform to preach the gospel. A difficult question to ask is, what does my marriage say about the gospel? What can people close to me? I don't need just, you know, that guy at Walmart to look at you and your wife buying pizza or whatever and say, I love Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. But it's more along the lines of those who know Rachel and I well should be able to see Jesus and his love for his church in our marriage. When you have dinner at our house, you should see this. And if not, what's the problem? Ask. Ask those who are wise. Ask those who are further down the road. What can I do to help my marriage proclaim the gospel? Why is this so important? It's so important because if our, if our marriages are intended to proclaim something about Jesus and who he is and his relationship to his people, we need to remember that this world is full of broken marriages and people that are hurting. I don't believe anyone when they say the divorce rate is... I've given up on believing statistics. Everyone can skew them. But... Divorce is rampant in the world and in this room. That's another good reason that we need to spend time reflecting on our marriage and working these things out because there are people in this room that have great marriages. There are people in this room that have okay marriages. There are people in this room that are on the verge of divorce. There are people in this room that don't even talk to each other at home anymore. And you need to feel that. It's important. Your marriage is important 
Not because itself is important, but because the gospel is most important. Your marriage is important because the gospel is most important. Um, on December 16th, 2006, I was standing here-ish at First Baptist Church in Moore, Oklahoma. Going down the stairs, I had brothers and good friends from college. Right here is my late grandfather, a pastor of many years. And coming down that center aisle is the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in white. Her dad, his arm linked with hers. He's crying, and I'm sure it's with joy, and I'm about to give her to him. Um, <laughs> but they come down, stop right there. My grandfather says, who gives this woman to this man? They do the exchange. And then uh, Rachel's dad's a preacher too, so we had to split the service halvesies. So my grandfather goes down, he gives her away, and then he hops up here, and I swear he preached at me for an hour. <laughs> I was so tired. Um, I, I was questioning marriage a lot during that whole sermon. Um, but... As, as overwhelmingly joyful as that day was, when she turned that corner and came in that door, she was still the wrong person for me. And then when we said, I do, and we walked out, we all of a sudden had a new life to live and bound to the gospel. And it's hard because um, when we left, I'm 21 years old. She's 20 years old. We don't even realize how stupid we are. And we leave and I had no idea what biblical manhood looked like as Jim spoke a few weeks ago. I had no idea how to not be passive, how to take responsibility, how to lead. No clue. Took me years to figure that out. And I married the wrong person, and she had no idea what it was like to be a godly woman. Took us years to figure that out. We decided that we were going to do things God's way in terms of sex, but that doesn't mean that we didn't have other relationships in the past where we weren't doing things God's way, and we bring all this baggage to this relationship, all these ridiculous expectations and memories and experiences with other people, and it was years of difficulty for us. Up to that point, we had spent a long time not living as godly single people. And when we joined together and we left the sanctuary, it was years of figuring that out. Throw in a couple of kids, that set us back. The first year of having Matthew, we were trying so hard to figure out how to be parents, we forgot how to be married. Job changes, moving cross-country, coming back, college it felt like the deck was stacked against us. And yet my wife today, she spends a lot of time working in a, in a college ministry, and so we have a lot of college students over at our house for dinner or just to hang out and do whatever. And you know, Christian college students, if they're dating, they're always about seven minutes from getting engaged or married. So they always want to talk about this stuff. Um, so they always ask us, like, tell us about like, what it's like to have a good marriage. Tell us what it's like to be a good husband and a good wife. And we just laugh. We're like, we aren't qualified to say any of that. And yet, next month, we'll celebrate. On December 16th, will be our 10-year anniversary. And we are here exhausted today. But 
At 30 years old, Rachel is so much more godly than she was when she was 20. And much of that because of her marriage. At 31 years old, I am much more godly than I was at 21. Much of that due to our marriage that has shaped us, formed us, made us more like Jesus. And so when a college student says, you have a good marriage, tell us the secret. We just laugh. The gospel, they're like, no, no, okay, I know, but what's the secret? Like, well, we, we are brutally committed to each other. If we went by the world standards, we'd have been divorced nine years ago. I love, each, I love her in a biblical way. We submit to one another. We bring in wise counsel. And 10 years into it, we are exhausted. In many ways, it's been a slugfest. And in many ways, it's been beautiful. So there's no shortcut for faithfulness. I love telling young women, you know how you're going to love him the best? Love Jesus more. Like you're obsessed with him right now. Not good. Love Jesus more. I pray that for all of our marriages. I pray that you get your eyes off your spouse and love Jesus more. Believe me, once you do, you'll be able to love him or her better. Now, in a few minutes, um, I'm going to have Drew come up for a second. In a few minutes, we're gonna, we'll be done. We'll have people down here that, wanna, that, that would love to discuss this with you. I, I can't fathom there's anyone in here who's unaffected by marriage, whether it's your own or someone else's. But just know, I'd love to talk to you. We have elders and Stephen ministers and, and other godly people that would love to talk with you about this. We have entire ministries devoted to marriage. Please don't go that way if you're feeling the spirit stir come this way. I'm gonna have Drew come up in a couple of days. You guys know there is a little something going on on Tuesday, so Drew is going to give us some wisdom. So I've already told you about that. Listen to wisdom. It's a great message. In my own opinion, it could have been a little bit longer, but that's just me. <laughs> it's cool. Some of, us, some of us don't have the stamina to preach for 53 minutes, but that's all right. Um, As, uh, as Ryan said, this Tuesday there is obviously a fairly big election coming up, and so we just wanted to take a few minutes as a church just to kind of remind you of a few things. We hope, um, we hope that you are thinking about and praying about uh, this, this Tuesday and what that might look, for, look like for you as you go to the polls, not just on kind of a presidential level, but um, as a church that lives in this community and wants to care about the good of the community that we're in that you're thinking about local things and, and what that's going to look like. So we hope that you're doing that. But what we do want to remind you of these three things uh, as you go to the polls Tuesday. And the first thing is this, um, that as Christians, we get to be a part of a kingdom that is bigger and greater and more lasting and more important than the, the nation that we live in right now. And we're blessed to be a part of America, this, this free country with a lot of different privileges to it. But we are far more blessed to be a part of Christ's kingdom. And, uh, and so we, we remember this, that our first allegiance is to that kingdom. Um, that means that the way we vote and interact in our politi politics is in a way that we, we hope first for the kingdom to be advanced by it. And, and it also means this, that we ought to concern ourselves more with things of the kingdom, with loving our neighbor well, and with bringing the gospel to people and through our marriage to reflect Jesus and his church, we ought to concern ourselves more with that 
than with the things of, of this nation and the voting thing. But that, that idea of us being um, part of a kingdom leads to our second thing, and that is that um, we, are, we are a people who ought not to be ruled by fear. And, and we believe uh, that whatever happens on Tuesday, brothers and sisters, our true king still sits on the throne on Tuesday night and on Wednesday morning. Um, and on Inauguration Day, and, and we have no reason to ever doubt his character or his integrity or his policies. Um, he is a good king who always does what is right and always does what is just and is in control. And so we don't have to be, we can be concerned, but we don't have to be racked with anxiety. We ought to be able to sleep well on Tuesday night, no matter what happens. Um, lastly, because we are a part of this kingdom, that means we are a people who ought to be marked by our love, first and foremost. Um, this is something that Jesus says anyway, that they'll know that you are my disciples by your love, by the way we love one another as a church, by the way we love the world, and, and lastly, and, and maybe even most important in this climate and this time, by the way we love our enemies. Even if we think that those enemies, or maybe even if we're right in believing that our enemies may be political figures, people who may be ruling over us, we're called to love them and, Jesus says, to pray for them, to pray for their good. Listen, the rest of the world at this time, America, is going to be really, really divided. And the reason why is because this nation is all they have. And if it doesn't go the direction they think it should go, then their life collapses with that, or so they think. But for us, We've got a kingdom greater than this. We've got a hope bigger than this. So I don't, I don't have to get irrationally angry about what happens on Tuesday. I don't have to be a jerk to people about what happens on Tuesday or how they're going to vote leading up to those things. I have a greater kingdom um, to, to be concerned about. So I am free to love when other people are angry. I'm free to be kind when other people want to hate. And, and especially Within our, within our church, that, that we ought to be marked by love for one another and not a divisiveness over those things. This is um, our hope this Tuesday, that whatever happens, that we as a church, Sunnybrook here and Capital C Church, would be marked by the kingdom, that we would be marked by hope, and, and that we would be marked by love. And so I hope that that will be true for you. Let me pray for that to be the case for us over these next couple days. Dear Father, I thank you for the opportunity to live in this nation. We have the freedom to do this right here, gather together and sing um, and, and worship you and take communion together and listen to your word. Um, this is a blessing that I so often take for granted. But, but far more than that, Lord, I thank you that because of Jesus that we get to be part of a greater kingdom. We get to have a greater king. Lord, I pray that you would put in all of our hearts and minds an eternal perspective, one that sees him and his kingdom first, that loves it most. I pray that you would enable us through your spirit to have hope, that you would give us wisdom in our voting and in our interactions, that you would help us to be loving with everyone we encounter. Whoever our leader ends up being on Tuesday, Lord, I pray, pray that you would give them wisdom pray that you would cut them to the heart about the truth of who you are, about the truth of the gospel. And I pray that you would use whatever happens for the advancement of your name and your kingdom and your church, that you would get all the glory and we would take joy in that. 
I ask you that in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are dismissed.